0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. What happens now in the UK? The Conservatives in the UK won the election last week. However, they don't have a majority. As a result, a hung parliament. The opposition Labour Party is delighted with the gains. Uh, However, nobody knows how this is all going to shake down. Let's bring in Jeff Semple, Global News European Bureau Chief, and with us now. Hello, Jeff. How are you today?
1: No, I'm not too bad. Finally got a little bit of sleep uh, over the weekend after a pretty uh, restless few <laughs> last week, that's for sure.
0: I can imagine what your week was like uh, last week. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, and we've talked about this many times. What was the mood prior to the, the election in the U.K.? Now what's the mood today?
1: Well, prior to the election, I suppose it depends uh, who you're talking about. Certainly, Theresa May and her Conservative Party prior to the election, supreme confidence. They were all but certain that yesterday was or last week, excuse me, was going to effectively amount to, to a coronation for Theresa May, the British Prime Minister, when she called the election less than two months ago. She was so far ahead in the polls, more than 20 percentage of points by most pollsters' assessment, that it seemed almost impossible for her to lose, and so she called the election as a way to strengthen her majority government. But as we saw last week, that didn't pay off that gamble in fact it failed in spectacular fashion she lost her majority government she won the election but was largely seen as the big loser on the day and now Theresa May at Downing Street number 10 of course the prime minister's office is in damage control they have been doing the rounds today sending out all of their cabinet ministers doing interviews on all of the major networks in the UK stressing the fact that they are behind Theresa May 100% despite the fact that we have heard furious rumblings from particularly from some of the backbenchers in her conservative government calling for her to resign saying that this was entirely her fault that the it was an unnecessary gamble and that she should resign as a result now she has come out today and again reiterated that she is not planning to step down that she you know that the government country right now needs stability and strength going into those Brexit negotiations today she called a meeting of her new cabinet which includes a couple new additions including uh, one person Michael Gove, who is widely seen as a contender for her leadership spot, she's now bringing him into her cabinet, widely seen as a move to try and stave off any potential future leadership threat. And she's also meeting right now, Scott, in fact, with a committee that represents some of her backbench MPs, some of whom, as I said, were very angry and are still very angry. So Theresa May working to try and revive a government uh, that is many see as being on life support at this point.
0: So why do you think the poor showing, Jeff? Do you think it was because uh, a feeling of arrogance, calling an election before uh, you really need to? Or how much did the terror attack play or terror attacks play into all of this?
1: Yeah, I think it was a combination of things. I think that, you know, the terror attacks did play a role, it would appear, certainly, from what we've heard from a number of pollsters over the past couple of weeks, but maybe not as much as you might think, particularly from the outside looking in. I mean, the fact that those two things sort of appear to be happening at the same time, the terror attacks, Theresa May's plummet in the polls. But the pollsters say, in fact, it actually had more to do with uh, the manifesto, the sort of government platform that Theresa May released um, right around the time of the Manchester attack actually, and it proposed a number of unpopular policies, particularly a planned cut to social care, what her opponents dubbed a dementia tax. And as soon as that hit the airwaves, it seemed her popularity started to plummet, and it just didn't stop. There were a number of missteps that she made And I think people generally saw that she delivered a poor campaign, particularly in contrast to her main opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn, the head of the British Labour Party, who suddenly surged in the polls. And this is a man who just weeks ago, pollsters and analysts were writing off as politically dead. I mean, his own party just a few months ago tried to overthrow him. But now, suddenly, he, according to a poll today, is just as popular as Theresa May. And in fact, according to a poll out today, if another election were held today, we would be talking about Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn.:
0: Wow., so uh, so what is the U.K. left with? How does May move forward?
1: Well, right now, uh, priority number one for Theresa May is to try and turn her minority government into a pseudo-functioning majority, if you like. She is expected to engage tomorrow in negotiations with the leaders from a small party based in Northern Ireland known as the Democratic Unionist Party. Now, the Democratic Unionist Party, or the DUP, only picked up 10 seats in the election on Thursday, but Theresa May's Conservatives are only eight seats short of forming the majority so they are going into negotiations to see if they can't work together it will not be a formal coalition they're calling it uh, confidence and supply partnership in other words the two parties agreeing, you know, in principle, to work together to try and form a majority in Parliament. And Theresa May is going to need that majority because, you know, the first order of business for any new government is to pass what's known in this country as the Queen's Speech. What's known in Canada, of course, is the Speech from the Throne, and literally the Queen delivers it in the UK. And it is the government's platform, their plan to govern moving forward. It it was supposed to happen on a week from today, Scott, but it has now already been delayed. And they're not saying now when it's going to happen. But effectively, Theresa May needs to buy time to negotiate with the DUP to come up with some sort of plan for the future that both parties can agree on. And if that that plan, like just like the speech from the throne, is a confidence vote, it needs to pass. So Theresa May needs to make sure that she has the votes to get this first speech through, because if she doesn't, we could be going to the polls yet again in another election. And as I alluded to earlier, that is the last thing Theresa May's conservatives want to see. Mm.
0: So what can you tell us about the Democratic Unionist Party? How do they feel about this arrangement?
1: Well, they seem pretty pleased, as you might imagine. A party, you know, in the, in the British House of Commons, it's worth uh, remembering they have about 650 MPs, uh, so about more um, than twice the size of Canada's Parliament for a country that's about twice the size. So the DUP, with their 10 seats, represent just a fraction of the seats in the House of Parliament, but now suddenly they are playing kingmaker, and they are quite pleased to be in this position, uh, but many of their critics are crying foul, effectively claiming that Theresa May's Conservatives are making a deal With the devil here, and that is in part because the DUP is known to have ultra conservative policies. They are anti gay marriage, anti abortion, uh, and also, you know, they're very raison d'etre. Part of the reason that their main role in Northern Ireland is to sort of be the go between, between the government in Westminster and London and the Republicans in Ireland. It's probably, I mean, it's a, you know, we try not to get into the weeds here, but it's effectively the DUP has an important role to play in maintaining the Good Friday Peace Agreement between the UK and between Northern Ireland. And so some in Ireland are upset to see them sort of lining themselves up with the Conservatives in Westminster to sort of form the main majority government here. So in other, I mean, in short, Scott, this is not only this partnership, has not only raised questions about, you know, the Conservatives teaming up with a party that's seen to have social values that don't represent the majority of British population, but also partnering up with a government that is also, whose main purpose is really supposed to be to help maintain that peace agreement, a fragile peace agreement between the United Kingdom or between, certainly, Westminster and, and Great Britain and Northern Ireland.
0: Uh, obviously, May called this election to have more power going into Brexit. Where does this leave Brexit now?
1: Yeah, this leaves Brexit and perhaps this is the most important takeaway in complete disarray. I think the the negotiations were the formal negotiations with the European Union were scheduled to start on Monday a week today and we are also hearing that those negotiations may also now be delayed and the clock is ticking. Theresa May has already activated what's known as Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. That means she has now less than 2 years to get a deal done. So time wasted is important here, but the problem is for Theresa May that she has different ideas about what brexit should look like than say some opposition members including jeremy corbyn as i mentioned earlier the head of the labor party uh who is promoting what you know what's called in this country a soft brexit if you like versus theresa may's hard brexit the key difference being scott that You know, soft Brexiteers like Jeremy Corbyn want, if possible, to maintain tariff free access to the European Union single market. The catch is that European Union leaders say, well, if you want access to our single market, that means you have to agree to the free flow of people. In other words, anyone in the European Union who wants to live and work in the United Kingdom can do so. And of course, immigration And the free flow of immigrants from European Union countries was one of the main reasons that people in the UK voted for Brexit in the first place. So Theresa May wants to shut the door on EU immigration. She wants to get out of the single market, but her opponents want just the opposite. So suddenly what you know, looked like a pretty clear position from the United Kingdom, from the British government, is now anything but, and it's anyone's guess as to what this Brexit deal will ultimately look like as a result of this election, and whether it'll even be Theresa May who finally signs the agreement at the end of it all.
0: Jeff Semble has been with us, Global News Europe Bureau Chief. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight to hear more of what Jeff has to say. Jeff, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Here's a clip from uh, the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party and what they have to say about their new role.
2: We will, of course, act in the national interest and do what is right uh, for the United Kingdom as a whole and, of course, Northern Ireland in particular. There's been a lot of hyperbole uh, about the DUP uh, since Thursday. A lot of things said, uh, a lot of people who really don't know what we stand for. But just to be clear, uh, we will act in the national interest. We want to do what's right for the whole of the uk and to bring stability uh, to the government of the united kingdom
0: here's what the deputy chief spokesperson had to say
3: for us uh, the fate of citizens both in both scenarios uh, is of the utmost importance. we want to get this settled uh, and this uncertainty to be lifted uh, from these people these families uh, as quickly as possible
0: all right let's bring in paul whiteley professor from university of essex and is with us now hello paul how are you today
3: just fine.
0: Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. What is the feeling in the UK today?
3: <laughs> well, uncertainty uh, sums it up in a single word. <clears throat> the Queen's speech, um, which, as you know, is the starting point of uh, the new parliament and a statement by the government of what it's going to do, that's been delayed. Um, the negotiations with the Democratic Unionists continue, although in principle, they're agreed, it's said. Um, And uh, Theresa May talks to the Parliamentary Conservative Party this evening, and there's concern about how she will be received, because a lot of the MPs, and indeed the party members in the country, are seething with anger over what they think is a a bungled election. And um, so she's going to have a rough ride. I think. And I don't think in the long run um, she can survive as the party leader. She'll have to step down.
0: What does it say when the Queen's speech is delayed? Why is that?
3: Because um, the party of government can't agree, in this case with its um, partner, the DUP, what exactly will be in that speech. Remember, the Conservatives um, produced a manifesto with Several proposals in it for the general election. And now um, the issue is what are we going to throw overboard from that manifesto? Um, what are we going to focus on? Um, Linton Crosby, who is an Australian um pollster who advised the Conservative Party, has a phrase, he says, Let's get the barnacles off the boat. And what he means is um focus heavily on one key thing in elections and don't let other things divert you Mm. and the key thing of course that the government has to focus on is brexit and exactly what will happen and what's the position taken up in the um, negotiations as your previous commentator mentioned it's almost certain now that it won't be such a hard brexit as uh, Theresa may and the conservative government planned prior to the um general election but we don't know how it'll turn out and the financial markets are reacting rather neurotically at the moment precisely because of that
0: uh the democratic unionist party uh holds balance with these few seats what position does it put them in how are they being viewed at this point
3: well i think you know their leader arlene foster had a big smile on her face Mm -hmm. when she was interviewed uh you know, um, earlier, this, earlier today, and I'm not surprised. I don't think your listeners should be uh, misled by the argument that the Democratic Unionist Party has rather old-fashioned views about cultural issues. I mean, they're anti-gay, they're anti-abortion, and they, they're opposed to same-sex marriage, that sort of thing, which the Conservative Party have now wholly adopted and accepted. But they're not going to raise those issues in any co- combined, you know, working working program. They're going to leave them off the table because this is a great opportunity for them to get the British government to cough up large amounts of cash for um, infrastructure in Northern Ireland mm. and for that that kind of thing. It means more money for Northern Ireland as far as they're concerned. And I don't think for a minute they'd want to jeopardize that by raising cultural issues, which can be, you know, very intractable and can cause great uh, divisions.
0: So, uh, obviously, Theresa May called this to, uh, to get an advantage on Brexit. Where does this leave Brexit now? Is this more difficult a negotiation, or will it be easier?
3: I think it's bound to be more difficult. Indeed, the fact that the Queen's speech has been delayed is, if you like, a signal of how complicated the negotiations will be and shows the likelihood that they will be delayed precisely because everything will have to be referred back and discussed and debated um, before agreement can be reached. Now, to put in one caveat to that, the negotiations as they're being set up at the moment are going to tackle a fairly easy problem to begin with. And this is whether or not existing EU member, EU member states, citizens who live in Britain, work in Britain, are going to be able to stay. And equally, um, the issue of Brits who live and work in the EU, are they going to be able to stay and are they going to keep the same rights? Now, there's no opposition to agreement on that. Uh, pretty much everybody, mm. Brussels and certainly London and, and elsewhere, agreed that, Um, This is a good thing, and existing individuals who have settled in Britain should be given these rights. So they can get a quick win from this, and that means in publicity terms, um, it starts off with a good um, atmosphere to it. um, And that's something that might be able to sustain a momentum, The really big issue, which they'll get round to in a few months' time, probably next year, is the issue of membership of the single market, which a number of people in the House of Commons, there's there's actually a majority of um, members of the House of Commons, including conservatives, um, who really want um, to maintain access for economic and trade reasons. And the City of London is lobbying for this um, because it's very concerned Mm. about sustaining its market. Effectively, at the moment, the City of London is the financial capital of the European Union. Um, There's been attempts by Frankfurt and Paris to take on this role, but really the city... Is the financial capital and it naturally enough doesn't want to lose that.
0: Let me ask you she's one question. Pressure for that. Let me ask you one question, Paul. And obviously, the Queen doesn't try to weigh in on politics, but she has obviously seen a lot over the decades. How do you think she's viewing the UK today?
3: Well, I think she may be as bemused as um, many of the rest of us. Um, she famously was touring the London School of Economics just after the financial crash in 2008 and said to the um, economics uh, teachers there, why didn't we see this coming? <laughs> and uh, this is a sort of famous line. And I think that maybe some of that, the Queen is puzzled and mm. amused, um, you know, about the whole thing. And she has a tremendous experience going back a long way. And so I think, you know, she'll have a deep understanding of what's going on. But certainly at the moment, it's rather confusing. And it looks like the whole negotiation will be delayed and will be quite complicated. But if it can get off to a good start, um, then the key issues uh, it may be easier to get agreement than we thought. But right now, the sticking point is membership of the mm. um, the. Well, Customs Union in part, but also the free trade area.
0: Paul Whiteley has been with us, Professor, University of Essex. Paul, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Critics of the College of Nurses of Ontario say that they need to be more transparent and active when it comes into uh, investigations. The day after Elizabeth Wetlaufer pleaded guilty, to, of course, taking the lives of those seniors in homes. They announced it was accelerating an, inv- uh, an investigation into her conduct. However, a growing amount of people are calling for a public inquiry into the attacks on patients. To talk about all of this, Jane Medes is with us, staff lawyer, in uh, institutional advocate, Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and is with us now. Hello, Jane. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? Good. Tell us about the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. So uh,
2: the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly is the Clinic. We're located in Toronto, and we provide services for um, seniors in the area of uh, legal information and legal advice. Um, uh, we represent clients uh, who are low-income, who have senior-related issues, um, and uh, we do that for free through legal aid Ontario.
0: So uh, considering what has happened uh, with these uh, nursing home killings, whose responsibility is it to police these homes and staff?
2: there's a several different levels of, of policing so we have the ministry of health they look at the nursing homes to make sure that they're complying with the standards um, and the legislation uh, and they are the people that that investigate any kind of complaints and they do annual inspections the college of nurses would do the um, review of any complaints uh, around individual staff members um, and any kind of negligence or problems that they may have
0: uh, considering uh, how how uh, this industry is growing and, and will continue to grow, considering demographics and such, do we have adequate guidelines in place, do you
3: think?
2: Well, I don't. And you have to be very careful because, in fact, the long-term care industry is not growing. Um, we're not getting any new beds. What we're getting is a lot of new retirement homes. And that's a whole separate industry that has a separate um, oversight body, which is not the same and is actually quite a lot less, so people who go into retirement homes don't have the same oversight because they have the re- retirement home regulatory authority, but it's a, mu- it's a lesser um, kind of oversight. Uh,
0: so in your opinion, how is this allowed to happen?
2: Well, I mean, I think in this case, you know, we had some issues with this member of the College of Nurses. The college had, as we understand, been notified, and the problem has historically been a couple of things. One of which was that they had the inability to really do a lot of things pending the outcome of an investigation. Now that has changed with the new legislation and so it's, you know, time will tell whether or not you know, cases like this will be in fact identified as something where people could possibly be suspended earlier on. The second is the length of time that these investigations take to be investigated and that has historically been a big problem. So even when you get, you know, there's certain timelines, but when that sort of investigation process goes, a lot of times these may take a year or two to actually investigate, and that's just too long in cases like this.
0: You talked about two different bodies, one for the home and then one that, 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 that uh, uh, investigates uh, nursing staff and such. Should that be streamlined? Should that be brought under one umbrella? Is, are we missing something here? Is, I, I, is, are we falling through the cracks?
2: an issue of falling through the cracks i think they definitely have two different issues the the college is looking at the license of the person and they do investigations the ministry actually does inspections which is a totally different thing Um, and so they're not going to be looking at any regulated body per se now they do look at nurses um, in long-term care a little bit more closely than they would for example on physicians because the nursing is providing more of the services that are regulated under the legislation so something like medication errors could be caught in both areas.
0: Um, something, you know, for for those who don't know a lot about this industry or about medicine or nursing or that sort of thing, it seems that and maybe this is, you know, being naive, naive activity, uh, 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 being naive on our part, but it would seem that if something like this was going on, in other words, a nurse administering incorrect medication or insulin or whatever it was, that somehow that would be caught?
2: Well, and, and, and in fact, it seems that, you know, some of this was. I mean, some there were in issues around the medication. Now, the issue of the administration of the insulin to patients, um, that is actually a really tricky one to catch. But part of the problem is, is you know, the lack of oversight within homes. Um, you know, when someone's working at night, as as Ms. Loeffer was, when there's no one else there, how does that sort of thing get monitored, especially when it's, um, you know, insulin is certainly less regulated than something like a narcotic, because it has to be, uh, insulin is given on a sliding scale, so depending on how much you need, so it's harder to monitor that type of thing. But, I mean, even in this case, there were you know, if you separate out those issues of the insulin, she had self, you know, there, there, not self, sorry, she, the homes had actually reported her. There had been issues. She was fired. How did she get into other homes? Were the homes not, you know, barring the, the College of Nurses taking so long? That's one issue. But were the homes, for example, calling the previous employers and say, why is she not there anymore? You know what kind of information was going there?
0: It kind of you kind of get the feeling here, Jane, that somebody was just kind of pushing it off onto somebody else. I don't want this problem; somebody else take it.
2: Well, and that's sometimes the case. Sometimes employers will say, you know, if you leave, um, you know, we're we're you know we may or may not tell other other people about it. There's an re- issue around what kind of duty they have around um, reporting to other uh, potential employers. One of the problems in long term care when it comes to nursing. Is that it can be very difficult in some cases for homes to actually hire nursing staff, um, and so I think that sometimes they hire people um, potentially without maybe doing their due diligence um, because they're so desperate to get people.
0: Uh, once, w- one well, do you you believe there should be an inquiry into this? Correct. I absolutely do. What do you think that will reveal? Or what, what questions will be answered? Well,
2: I think it's gonna, we need to look at how can we protect these people because unlike children in a daycare center where mom and dad are picking them up every night and are really having a look at the person, we have vulnerable people in long-term care who may not see anyone from outside that facility for long periods of time. So we have to look at how is, what do we need to do to make sure that people in those homes are protected. Um, and whether it be from something like this, whether it be from, you know, we get lots of complaints about medication errors, medication not being given, medication being given to other people. These may be simple, you know, errors of people being run off their feet, but if that's a problem, then we need to look at that. Um, a lot of what's going on in long-term care is very self-reporting, so it's the, the home that reports deaths, it's the home that reports any kind of medication errors, because we don't have that same You know, person going in and the people who are living there are often uh, uh, unable to speak for themselves. They may have dementia. They wouldn't be able to Mm -hmm. tell you if they were, even if it happened. We have to look at that. We have to look at the systemic issues and how do we provide high level care in a safe environment to all people in
0: long-term care. It would seem that if somebody tried to kill a patient that it would have been found out, whether it's through an autopsy, whether it's through uh, uh, cameras or behavior or investigation, what have you, uh, surprised to hear that this was insulin. And you know, I'll be honest with you, uh, Jane, I didn't think that this was this easy to do
2: and i think that's the point
0: and and, and you know when we're when we're having the discussion about doctor assisted death
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know you're thinking how can this be happening
2: right it's i mean i think that's the thing is that is shocking it doesn't you know luckily you are really reliant on on these people and in general you know we the staff are good and they're not going to do this type of thing um, we don't have a lot of cameras in long-term care. Some homes have them in their hallways, but not most of them. I would say don't at this point, and I think that's something we really need to look at. Um, you know, the oversight of, of, over all of this stuff is somewhat limited. Um, you know, it it's just something that that's the reason we need to have these have an inquiry, is to look at what sort of things are going on in these homes and what kind of protections can we put in place? Because I think the protections you're talking about probably really aren't there.
0: And considering, uh, again, how the, the population is aging, there's more a need for that now than I would think ever, isn't there?
2: There is. And part of the problem, too, um, and you know, it depends on what, the, what an inquiry would look at, is that we're really hearing a lot more... Um, either because there are no long term care home places or the ministry is talking about, the government is talking about putting in um, a voucher system for retirement homes. And now we're taking people um, who are vulnerable and can't speak for themselves uh, out of even the long term sector, which has a very, you know, it's supposedly very regulated, and we can have a debate about how regulated it is, but it is regulated, into the private sector retirement homes, which are tenancies and are, don't have the same protections. And so that same nurse could be in a retirement home, and there would be even less protection there.
0: So since this has happened, uh, obviously there is, you know, a request for an inquiry and such, but has, have we learned anything from this? Uh, what about homes themselves? H- how are they looking at this?
2: Well, I, I haven't, you know, I, I don't know. I think that homes are obviously... Um, all these things put sort of a bit of a scare into everyone, so I think that they're probably really being very careful about their uh, what's going on in the home, and if there's anything going on that they think is a problem, they're probably reporting it a bit more. Um, and we certainly see those sort of ebbs and flows to the system. Um, one of the things that you talked about was the, thing, the the autopsies. We don't have autopsies in long-term care. I think in my experience here in 22 years, I've had one client probably outside of some very horrendous situations, but one client where there were some questions mm-hmm. where an autopsy was done. So people in long-term care are expected to die. People don't leave long-term care um, generally right. to go and live in the community. Mm-hmm. The deaths are so expected that um, we don't have the kind of review that we need to, and I think that's one of the issues that I think we really do have to look at is homes, know what are they reporting Uh, deaths are reported by the home to the coroner so the coroner is generally reliant upon them unless there's a police investigation for some reason or families are upset so you know all those people who don't have families nobody's going to complain or they don't have families that are involved you know home home calls up and says you know dad died last night he you know his heart just failed and that's i think what happened in these cases People were just told hey they you know had something and they died so it's it's not out of the ordinary, but it's when these get to the pile up. And also, do we need to do more spot checks? Do we need more autopsies? Just see what happens. Just to make sure these sort of things aren't happening.
0: Uh, do you think this is happening more than we know it is?
2: I wouldn't speculate. I would hope not. I think that this is, you know, one of those outliers. But what my concern is, is that we do see things like um, issues around, you know, problems with, medication more medication errors because of staff not uh you know uh, having enough time Um, we see a lot of issues around bed sores and things where family isn't being notified people are dying of things that maybe they shouldn't be dying of in long-term care um so i you know i'm hoping that we don't have a nurses out there and i would you know haven't heard that that we're worried about that but i think there's it it shines a light on a lot of the issues that can happen in long-term care, and that we really are, you know, sort of having a blind eye to because we're really not looking at it.
0: Do you think this can happen again, Jane?
2: If I, I can't say that it wouldn't, because unless you have a camera on somebody twenty-four-seven, and I, you know, then you're getting into some privacy issues. Who wants a camera in their bedroom and stuff? Um, you know, you have to have uh, some. Uh, you know, have to give some responsibility to your nursing staff, and that's, that's going to happen. And, and there's, I don't think there's any way, perfect way of protecting, but I think that we could do a lot more to put a lot more protections in.
0: So what about a public inquiry? What are the chances here?
2: Well, I've heard that the um, uh, Premier Wynn has said that there's something they will look at. That's something that I know a number of other agencies have also uh, been asking for now as well, and um, I'm glad that they they've joined that. Uh, with the uh, criminal traveling over, um, once that process is finished, then it could go forward. We needed to have that done. I think that I'm hoping that it's a good chance it will be uh, going, and I you know encourage people that if they think this is a good idea, they should be going to their MPP and demanding it. Uh,
0: is is there an easy answer to
2: this? No, there's no easy answer. We're dealing with this uh, health system. We're dealing with very frail, vulnerable population that are dealing that are somewhat isolated. Um, you know, we need—that's what we need to look at. And I, you know, if there was an easy answer, we wouldn't need a public inquiry.
0: Hmm. Are we ready for our aging population?
2: I don't believe we are. We have uh, twenty-two thousand people thereabouts on waiting lists for long-term care. Although there's some construction uh, going on in the system people are always surprised to find out that there's no new beds. So while they're taking old facilities and rebuilding them into, you know, a more uh, modern type of facility, um, there's no beds going in. And we really don't have an action plan. And, you know, telling people they have to go into retirement homes where they're paying for their health care is not a solution.
0: Uh, it's not as if we didn't know this was coming.
2: I agree. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, neither provincially nor federally do we really do we have a good plan for moving forward. It's all Band-Aid. Uh,
0: when we go back and look at this case, will it be obvious there is a problem or is this one of those things that just slipped through?
2: I think, again, you know, would, would we be able to say that this person was, you know, going out in an administ- um uh, insulin, and, and is it 100% for a proof that we could have found her? I'm not sure that it is, but I think it shines that light on a lot of the deficiencies in the system, and we could be doing a lot better job. Um, and you know, perhaps we could have uh, protected a number of people um, going forward because you know there were signs, there were issues, and usually people aren't doing this in sort of isolation. Right? There's other issues going on. And we could have prevented those other things, and perhaps looked at her license and said, you know, this isn't somebody she should have been practicing even if we hadn't known about the other issues. So I think it's something we really need to look at.
0: And you know, it would have been and many have commented that, you know, if, if she didn't come forward with this that this could still be going on.
2: I agree. And and as long as you know and, and we've seen that in other in other jurisdictions where there's large numbers because oh well they're old they expected to die. So right. that's it.
0: Uh, Jane has is with us, staff lawyer and institutional advocate, Advocacy Center for the Elderly. Jane, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're listening
3: to the Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML.
0: We've talked a lot over the years about automation, and uh, I remember being a kid and people talking about automation, and and an advancement in technology and such, and it was odd. I remember in the 80s reading something that said, by the time the next millennium, which we're in now, rolls around, uh, there'll be so much automation, we'll be we'll be working much less than we were at the current day, that what you could do over a five-day period, you'd now be able to do over four. So rather than um, making life easier for you, the employee, uh, what they did was just fire the guy next to you and give you the job. So now you have twice as much to do, but you can do it in a much more efficient manner. So the efficiency wasn't really uh, passed on, uh, you know, as a lifestyle choice. Instead, it was used to generate more business. Which in the end, it was probably pretty naive of us to think that it would be any different. So now uh, the chat of automation is coming up again as we face another technological revolution. Uh, and it means that certain occupations and even certain areas or regions of the country or countries that that have industry similar to this... Uh, run the risk of, of well, it's, it's certainly a risk if you're an employee, of being replaced by by automation of some sort. To talk more about all of this, Sean Mullen is with us. He's the Executive Director of the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and is with us now. Hello, Sean. How are you today? Very good. Yourself? I'm doing very well. Explain to everybody what the Brookfield Institute is. Uh, we are a institute
4: uh, housed at Ryerson University, and what we look at is kind of the broad... Uh, public policy and economic policy implications of technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship.
0: Uh, Nothing new here. We've been talking about automation for years, but the discussion seems to be changing, taking a different tone. Uh, Are we talking about it more now than we did say in the 50s or even at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution? Uh, I think it's a great question. I think what you've
4: seen and you kind of alluded to in your opening is this is a topic that kind of waxes and wanes over the years uh it pops its head up uh when people get anxious about the impact on jobs and that's, you know and then it kind of dissipates um and and you know our study kind of looks at the current uh implications of of that phenomenon but i think what you probably see is when there are periods of rapid technological advances that are that that change the nature of jobs in a short period of time you tend to have Anxiety about automation crop up more broadly in the news during during those periods of time.
0: So what do we do? Do we let the do we let progress and the free world uh, progress and, and and have run, or do we interfere and keep people unemployed? I think you know I think in the long run, we don't want to impede
4: technology. I mean, technology has, has ultimately been the creator of prosperity. Uh, um, you know higher levels of productivity are what separate us from uh, when we all used to work on farms or you know gather food tens of thousands of years ago um, and so nothing no, none of us want to get in the way of that uh, and it'll continue to make our lives better but what I think we want to be careful about is how quickly do we allow some of these Uh, advances, uh, disrupt current work environments, current jobs, and then what do we do for people who uh, do get dislocated uh, in in those circumstances?
0: So why are we talking about it during this period now? Is this because we're seeing a shift in the economy away from manufacturing jobs and no one is aware or, or, or yet there's no easy answer to what's replacing those?
4: Yeah, I I think there's a combination of two things. Um, If you look actually over the past uh, 20, 30 years, there's been a pretty consistent trend uh, in the manufacturing and other kind of um, uh, labor intensive uh, uh, or traditionally labor intensive industries where technology, whether it's robotics, automation, uh, others have started to. Essentially, reduce the number of workers you need to, you know, to make something. Um, and, th- and there's been work kind of out of the states uh, by economists in the past year that have shown, you know, the introduction of jobs and automation, in particular sectors, have have resulted in net decreases in the number of, of workers. But I also think going forward, uh, in certain areas of technological breakthroughs, right now, the, the status of artificial intelligence really advanced machine learning algorithms, big data is starting to be able to move that trend into a huge new category of jobs, so um, service-oriented jobs, uh, uh, jobs like accountants or other other kind of traditionally white-collar jobs are now also being at risk. So so the number of jobs as a whole from the economy-wide perspective is being seen as uh, a larger proportion at risk than perhaps uh, at previous points in the
0: past. You said technology must prevail and, uh, and generally it does in the end create more jobs. Is it producing as many jobs as it's losing now? Well, it's a really hard thing to tease out directly. So,
4: you know, here in Canada um, and, and even in, in the United States, um, we've had net new job growth uh, um, at pretty consistent levels over the past, uh, you know, ever since the financial uh, crisis, for example. That was the last really big uh, dip in employment levels. But where jobs are being created are not necessarily in the same areas geographically or in the same categories as where jobs are being lost. So you see this kind of disconnect between, you know, relative levels of manufacturing declining, uh, but other areas of the economy growing. It's hard to fully tease out that technology is 100% responsible for that. But, uh, but certainly um, what, what we would say is there's an uneven impact Uh, um, and affecting people differently.
0: Uh, This study also talks about the city or region that is most susceptible to these jobs, to losing these jobs. Uh, And it rates, you know, Kitchener, Waterloo is up the top, Hamilton, Calgary, Winnipeg, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Montreal, Vancouver, Toronto, blah, blah, all the way down to Ottawa. But, you know, no matter if you're at the first place, uh, first or second place on this list or at the bottom, it's still a massive amount there's only a, a few percentage points different from the top of the list to the bottom uh, even in ottawa it says 43% of the jobs are going to be affected that's a tremendous amount of people it, indeed
4: and that's and that's part of um you know the work that we're doing i mean we put out a study last year that looked at it took you know all kind of 500 occupations this is the way that statistics canada Breaks down the labor force, and we used a method to kind of estimate the impact of automation on every single one of those, and kind of came up with a uh, uh, a measure uh so for example um, you know jobs at very high risk of automation would be at you know ninety five percent plus likelihood of being replaced, where jobs at very low risk would be down uh, closer to zero or ten percent and what we found was that the economy wide the statistic was about forty two percent of all jobs. and so what we did here in this study that we released last week was we said, well, it'd be really interesting to understand the geographic dimensions of that and really based it on you know what is the composition of workers in a particular part of the economy. And so as you said, you'll you'll see variations uh, uh, areas of the areas of the economy, geographic areas that are more heavily weighted towards manufacturing or resource extraction. Uh, have a higher rate. Uh, But I think as you pointed out, there isn't a huge difference uh, in absolute terms, because uh, so many jobs across so many uh, categories are actually impacted that you don't see a wide, uh, as wide of a divergence as we might have thought. Uh, when we did this originally.
0: Uh, Obviously, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about uh, the raising of minimum wage and and making minimum wage a a livable wage. Uh, We've had the discussions here on this show uh, many, many years ago when I was pushing a broom around a Woolworth store and collecting the garbage behind the cash registers and such. uh, I was making minimum wage. I never, you know, ever once thought that, you know, I, I may have to, you know, sustain life and a family. On minimum wage. To me, this was just my first job. And when I've asked people what has changed, basically the answer is uh, people have no choice but to take these jobs now uh, because there is no other form of employment. Therefore, uh, you know, we're raising, which was once a starter wage or an introductory wage, up to something that is livable. So, how do you balance that? With technology replacing jobs, is the answer to raise minimum wage in the starter jobs and make them livable, or try to create better jobs with opportunity and rooms for advancement to get them out of minimum wage jobs?
4: Yeah, I I think it's a really good question. I mean, one of the ways to think about it is, um, um, you know, the jobs that we think will be left uh, and not impacted by or less likely to be impacted by automation are are jobs that are less routine oriented, um, require more judgment, uh, more higher order skills, more technological savviness. And so, in some way, and I'm just, I'm not I'm not saying this is the reason why why we should be happy about automation, but in some way, the jobs that are going to be left are going to be by definition higher, more productive, and therefore higher value added, and so therefore should uh, be able to command a higher uh, wage. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that intersects with the world with a higher minimum wage. Are we going to, you know, are are jobs that would have existed in the past that we would have paid people uh, lower amounts of money, are those even going to exist anymore because of automation as opposed to raising the minimum wage itself?
0: So uh, what advice, what message do you have for students? What's coming? What's going?
4: So our kind of advice to students is, to not necessarily try and predict what jobs are going to exist 10 or 20 years from now. Uh, That even what we're doing today is, is, you know, just a a forecast. Uh, It's not something that we know for certain is going to happen, but rather pick um, skills or competencies or um, traits that will allow you the flexibility to navigate a uh, changing work environment. So, for example. Rather than try and predict uh, a particular job that might use technology, build up the affinity and the ability to use technology, whether it's coding skills or others, uh, to be successful in that environment. Build up your uh, creativity or your ability to interact with people uh, or your ability Mm -hmm. to kind of manage or, you know, sense uh, work with collaborators across complex different problems because those are the hardest things for Software or technology to, to replace, and so I think you'll just make yourself more useful and valuable uh, to a future employer if you build up that, those skills and experiences. and then you know who knows if the job you end in up in after school is there 10 or 15 years from now but you'll be better positioned to kind of shift um, as over the course of a career uh, than I think if you're very rigidly put into one, one area.
0: Uh, Obviously, that's, you know, uh, a change that we've all seen uh, through our parents and perhaps grandparents, Uh, people who had, you know, perhaps one job for 30 or 30 some odd years. That's just simply not uh, happening anymore. Uh, Those who are experiencing that realize it. But are are students realizing that they may have to change or upgrade uh, their occupation several times during their career? That you know, maybe we are putting too much pressure on them to come up with one thing or one area of study. That you know, the reality is is that that may last them for a few years, but then that may be obsolete, and they may have to move in an entirely different direction.
4: Mm -hmm. I I think it's something. I mean. it's hard to get a sense of 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 kind of everybody's uh opinion on this but um you know i i think certainly the millennial generation and the one coming before it has has heard quite a bit about um the challenges that that, that they're potentially going to be facing in this work work environment or the future work environment and and what we you know what i would kind of say is is to kind of reinforce that for those who are who are not uh, aware of that challenge but um, also, we're starting to see this not happening fast enough, but we're starting to see our education system and our post-secondary education systems move towards providing more skill-based learning where it's less about the particular degree and more about the experiences and the, the set of tools that you that you get. We're starting to, as a society, understand the notions of work-integrated learning or, or lifelong learning, uh, skills-upgrading kind of post uh, your university or college experience, um, and I think we're just going to need to put more and more emphasis on that, and and change the na- the notion of, you know, it used to be you would go to school right up until whenever you finished, whether it's high school or post-secondary, and then you went into the work world for 30 years, and it was, you know, it was a big shift from school to work. Uh, now it's going to be. How do you get into the workforce while continuing to learn all the way through? And I think that's going to be the ticket to to anyone's success in in this kind of future labor market.
0: How has the psyche of young people changed? I remember I'm a guy who's 50 now, but I remember my parents both worked in factories. They worked very hard to sustain our our middle class uh, uh, life that we had. And I remember thinking, to you know, I I was fortunate fortunate enough to have more education. I was fortunate enough to pick what I wanted to do and actually enjoy what I wanted to do. I'm seeing less of that now and the swing back to, I'm looking for the pension. I'm looking for the government job. I'm looking for stability. Whereas when I was growing up, it was the world was our oyster. We could do what we want. We could reach for the stars. It seems now that young people are playing it more conservative and looking for that foundation as opposed to flying without a net. Mm -hmm. Thoughts?
4: I uh, I think, I I mean, it's, again, it's hard to overgeneralize, but I mean, based on some of the work I've seen on uh, research that's been done with millennials and and students in, in, you know, current current post-secondary institutions, uh, it it wouldn't be inconsistent with what you've said. Um, They're both interestingly more idealistic, but also more kind of grounded in, um, as you have said, uh, um, what can we do to uh, um, you know get that secure uh, job or, uh, or, or shore up my kind of financial future which in some ways you know both with the, the risk at um, uh, uh, labor market risks we've talked about but some of the other challenges facing millennials, the cost of buying homes, the cost of paying off student debt, um, which are challenges previous generations haven't felt in the same way, uh, it, it is kind of a tough environment for them. And so it's um, it, it in some way is not irrational to be looking at this from a, from a
0: risk-averse perspective. Are they as optimistic as the generation before, do you think? I, I, it's hard to tell. I mean, I, I, I work with... And, and I guess you can't compare generations. Yeah, it's not it, fair.
4: Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. But I, I, I can say I know a lot of idealistic, optimistic
0: millennials, but I
4: mean... Uh, it's hard It's hard to judge and compare them against previous generations.
0: Uh, do you think you have as much opportunity now as we did, I don't know, again, pick another era, post-World War II?
4: I would say it's, it's tougher in the sense of, um, you know, maybe if you're supremely talented and you've got some opportunities and you know what you want, I could say there's no better time to be alive. But I would say that, You know, it may also be tougher for, on average, uh, for the average person to get ahead Mm. than than it was right after World War II when there was kind of 20, 30 years of unprecedented economic growth and you saw the real rise of the the middle class.
0: Sean Mullen has been with us, Executive Director of the Brookfield Institute for Innovation at Ryerson. Sean, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM
4: 900 CHML.